I figured uh, I was addressing mostly a room full of strangers, so thank you for that, those of you who know me. Uh, my name is Brandon Hancock, and I teach at your Wesley Seminary here on campus. Uh, I'm professor of worship and practical theology, and uh, we exist to equip Christian leaders for missional ministry locally and globally. And so if you find yourself, regardless of whatever degree you've done at this stage in life, at some point later in life where you feel like you need equipping for further ministry, Wesley Seminary is a great place to come and study uh, at the master's and doctoral level. And uh, actually, I, I forgot, John Bray gave me a note right before I walked up here that says that exams have been canceled because of the Easter holiday. And so I just wanted to let you know about that. And is that, okay, April Fool's, right? You're too smart for that. It's a good April Fool's joke to have me preach on uh, April Fool's Day. I'm a worship guy. Uh, I lead worship at my local church. So this isn't really what you might expect. Uh, preaching is not kind of my first wheelhouse, but I enjoy getting to do it. And thank you for the opportunity today uh, on this Bible Monday to be a part of the series in the book of John that we've been going through together as a campus Thanks to the worship team and Anna and all those guys. That was great, wasn't it? Um, so, we're in John 19 today. And I want to start with this question. Have you ever experienced any unmet expectations in your life? Unmet expectations. I mean, when we exceed expectations, usually we don't say they're unmet. They're at, like it's a pleasant surprise or something, right? Like something exceeds expectations. But when it's unmet expectations, it's usually disappointment, uh, it's a letdown of some sort, right? Uh, I'm confronted with the fact that I just turned 40 and that most of you in this room, probably at least half of you in this room, weren't alive when Y2K happened. Does anybody know anything about Y2K? I know some of you are like, would have been real small. But um, everybody was freaking out about the year 2000. It had something to do with computer code and how when like everything reset it you know, zero one, zero one, zero zero, that like all the banks were going to crash and the internet was going to go down, the power grid. And so people were like stockpiling non-perishables and gasoline and preparing for like the zombie apocalypse and all this stuff, right? Like if you have family members who have like massive amounts of canned goods and things and f barrels of fuel, they might have been people who were freaking out about that. Do we have those slides? Like this is what um, Y2K, everybody was kind of freaking out about the end of the world, this was the front of Time magazine. And uh, yet, we woke up on January 1st, uh, or we stayed up past midnight, and like, nothing happened, right? Huh? Fake news. And we just moved on with our life. So sometimes, unmet expectations can be a good thing. Um, but on this Bible Monday, we're confronted with some unmet expectations in John 19. If you'd like to follow along, you can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles or on your smart devices or whatever you use. Um, we pick up in the middle of a story. And so if you remember from last Monday, if I have this straight, I was out of town last Monday uh, for my kids' spring break. But I think my dean, Dr. Absent Joseph, spoke about John 18. And he uh, brought that text to us asking the question, what is truth? The the story of Jesus before Pilate, right? What is truth? And, I, and this story continues at the beginning of John 19. And um, I think the question that the text is inviting me to ask and inviting us to ask today is this question. What kind of king 
is Jesus? What kind of king is Jesus? Maybe a secondary question is, what kind of kingdom is Jesus the king over? And so I'm going to read just from the beginning of John 19 uh, down through verse 15 to set this up. John 19, hear the word of the Lord. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged, and the soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they dressed him in a purple robe. And they kept coming up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and striking him on the face. And Pilate went out again and said to them, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no case against him. And so Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Here is the man. And when the chief priests and the police saw him, they shouted, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no case against him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has claimed to be the Son of God. Now when Pilate heard this, he was more afraid than ever, and he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate therefore said to him, Do you refuse to speak to me? Do you not know that I have power to release you and power to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no power over me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. And from then, Pilate tried to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are no friend of the emperor. Everyone who claims to be a king sets himself against the emperor. And when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside and he sat on the judge's bench at a place called the Stone Pavement, or in Hebrew, Gabbatha. And now it was the day of preparation for the Passover, and it was about noon. And he said to the Jews, here is your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate asked them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but the emperor. This is the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. So here's a quick recap if you've slept through most of the Bible Mondays. Jesus, leading right up to this, has been betrayed by one of his best friends. His own religious tribe, his own church folks have handed him over to Rome to be arrested and tried. They want him dead. Why do they want him dead? Well... Let's back up to John 2, because that was a long time ago, back in the fall, right? Jesus in John 2 cleanses the temple. He comes in and he turns over the money changers' tables and he makes a whip and he drives the animals out and all this stuff because there are people turning his father's house into a den of robbers and his father's house is to be a house of prayer and they're using their power and their authority to exploit people's religious devotion And then, right after he creates this ruckus in the temple, he threatens to tear down the temple. It's like a bomb threat, basically. He's like, tear down this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. They're like, what? Uh, Then we fast forward a couple chapters forward, and in John 5, Jesus uh, heals people on the Sabbath, right? This is not what a good Jewish man does. And then just a chapter later, he feeds these 5,000 people. They gather on the hillside, and he preaches to them. And you know the story, right? The little boy brings his fish and his bread, and Jesus feeds everybody. And then after they've eaten, 
he has this little teaching where he says, you know, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. And unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And they're like, what? That's gross. Like, we're, we don't do blood. We don't do, we certainly don't do cannibalism, right? And he says, you know what? And then he kind of like throws shade at their, one of their foundational stories. He's like, your, your ancestors, right? They, were, they ate manna in the wilderness, right? You remember that? Guess what? They died. They ate that living bread that came down from heaven. But I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. Are, they, are any of them still around? No. And so people start getting angry and they start getting frustrated. But nevertheless, he keeps attracting more followers. And these followers think he's the Messiah, the promised king of the Jews, the one that Yahweh promised would come and give the boot to imperial Roman rule and reunify the scattered tribes of Israel and establish them as one holy nation over all the nations of earth. And he's going to prove that their God is the one true God and privilege their religion over all the other religions and restore them to cultural dominance and probably give them free health care or at least a hat that says make Israel great again or something like that, right? That's what they expect. And all they can imagine is that the Messiah, whoever he is, whenever he comes, will do this by force. And it makes sense, right? Within their own history, think about their deliverance from Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt because Egypt had power. And God had to exercise greater power to free them from slavery. Their own military victories in the time of their kings, they've seen that force wins, might makes right. They've seen the rise of the Roman Empire, again, by force. They think that they know that this is how kingdoms are established. They're like us. Their imaginations are limited by what they've seen. They're looking for a king like all the other kings that they've ever seen, one with money and power. Right? That's how it works. Kings come to power by force. If you have more money, you can have more soldiers, you can have better weapons, then your army's going to kill more of the other side's army, and then you get to take their land. And like, that's how it works, right? Which means more money and more power, and on and on. But throughout the Gospels, and you can track this in all four Gospels, two things are always paired up in the life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus goes around proclaiming the kingdom of God and healing bodies. Proclaiming the kingdom and healing bodies. Casting out demons, healing the lame and the blind. His kingdom is established not by killing, but by healing. Instead of a Messiah leading a military rebellion like they expect, they get this guy who comes along and says... Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the persecuted. Let the little children come to me. And who touches lepers and bleeding women and blind people and lame people. These broken, useless people. And he hangs out not with the politically influential religious leaders of his tribe. But with tax collectors and prostitutes and lowly fishermen. Outcasts, losers, down and outs. And what's up with this kingdom he's proclaiming, right? The kingdom's like a mustard seed. The kingdom is difficult for rich people to enter. 
The kingdom belongs to children, but the kingdom belongs to the poor. So they're frustrated and they're disappointed and they're angry. They believe this guy was the Messiah and they're ready for a fight. And they get this, right? It's like false advertising. <laughs> you ever been a victim of false advertising? So my friend Jordan was real, he, Jordan graduated from here a few years ago. Jordan Kajeski, I don't know if anybody knows him. He used to hang out over at Countryside Wesleyan for a couple years. And uh, Jordan was real excited. I saw this on Facebook back in Halloween time. And he was real excited about uh, his Halloween costume, his Batman costume that was going to look like this, right? So he ordered it on the internet. And then this is what he got. This is what his, ba ba <laughs> his Batman costume. And I don't know why, but if you do a Google image search for false advertising, like every example is a food example. So I just brought a few of those too so that we could all kind of commiserate with one another. You ever like got the Pop-Tart out of the Pop-Tart box? And oh yeah, like the Cincinnati chili, that looks so good on the box, right? And then, ugh. This is one of my favorites, right? And, of course, I had to rag on McDonald's a little bit. Uh, actual Big Mac rotated to the most attractive angle. Like, these are just a few. So we can relate to disappointment, to unmet expectations, to uh, the relationship that we invested so much in, and it didn't work out. Uh, the job or the internship that we applied for that we didn't get. Uh, to the expectation that our parents were going to be together forever. And then, despite best efforts. So, people fail us. We fail ourselves. And it hurts. Right? Well, Jesus' followers trusted him... And they find him here, in handcuffs, bent over the hood of a police car, slapped around, hauled in before the judge. And they're just like, this is pathetic. This is not the king we ordered. This is not how kingdoms are established. Take this man away, give us that bandit Barabbas. That's where we ended up last Monday, right? At the end of chapter 18. It's a long shot, but maybe Barabbas, he was a bandit, he was an insurrectionist. Maybe he'll lead us in the kind of rebellion, the kind of uprising that we're waiting for. And these crowds who just a week earlier were laying their cloaks down on the ground saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now they're, give us Barabbas, crucify him. You ever think how weird it is that Pilate gets a mention in the Apostles' Creed? You know the Apostles' Creed? Jesus Christ's only son, our Lord, seated of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. He's like the only human besides Mary that gets mentioned in the Apostles' Creed, right? If you're in my Theology of Lyric class, and we just read Keith Drury's book together that talks about this, you don't get to answer. But why does Pilate get mentioned in the Apostles' Creed? That's really weird. I didn't expect that. And some people say, well, it locates the Christ event historically, right? This happened, this really happened under Pontius Pilate. Right? There was a real ruler, verified extra-biblical sources. There was this guy, Pontius Pilate, governor in Rome. This is when all this happened. Some people say that in Mary and Pilate, we get kind of the two poles of human responses 
to Jesus, to his lordship. We get the one that, we get Mary's, the first disciple, this kind of loving embrace of Jesus as the Messiah, and we get Pilate on the other pole. But I, this morning at least, and in the context of this text, I would say that it's a reminder that all this talk of kings and kingdoms is political. In Pilate, and his mention in the Apostles' Creed, politics comes crashing into our confession of faith. And we're reminded that the kingdom of God is a political body. You can't talk about kings and kingdoms without thinking about powers and politics. And so we find Jesus here before Pilate being questioned, being put on trial. And it's as though Jesus, even in what he doesn't say, is saying so much. And so this is not in the text. This is me trying to kind of get inside the story. But it's like Jesus in his very just presence in this story. By his just by, even in his silence, he's saying, see, I know you're looking for a mighty king, a king with power and servants who fight to protect me, but I'm not that kind of king. I'm a king who heals rather than harms to prove my strength. I'm a king who lays down power. I don't have servants. I'm a king who humbles himself and takes the form of a servant who empties himself. And my kingdom... It's not that kind of kingdom. It's not the kind where it's established by power and by killing. It's a kingdom where the least are greatest, where you have to be like a child to enter. You have to be born again to get in. And the truth is, all your other kingdoms are a sham. Your power is a sham. Your armies are a sham. Because they're all based on violence and the threat of force that keeps weak people weak and scared people scared. It keeps people divided against each other. It keeps sick people sick and poor people poor and hopeless people hopeless. That's not power. The truth is, that's not real power. Real power is healing the sick and lifting up the weak and afraid. Real power is that kid giving up his lunch and seeing God feed his whole village. Real power is sitting down at the table and breaking bread with enemies. Like the ones that betrayed me last night. The ones that five minutes ago denied they even knew me. Even the ones who sell you out for a bag of silver. It's really interesting to me how Pilate thinks he's the one doing the judging in this story. <laughs> and Jesus is the one on trial. But as Jesus stands there embodying the truth of the kingdom, it seems to me that Pilate is really the one who's being judged. And the power that he represents is what's being judged. And as I read the story, it seems like maybe I'm the one being judged. When I buy into that vision of power, and that vision of kings and kingdoms, 
that I'm being judged when I go from being in that crowd saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, to give us Barabbas, crucify him. Or perhaps the most sad, tragic words in this whole story of Jesus and Pilate when his own chief priests say, we have no king but Caesar. Help us. When we forget what kind of king Jesus is, what kind of kingdom he represents, what kind of kingdom we pray would come on earth as it is in heaven. John 19 goes on, they hand him over to be crucified. They took Jesus and carrying the cross by himself, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha, and they crucified him. And with two others, one on each side with Jesus between them, and Pilate had an inscription written and put on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and so it was written in Hebrew and in Latin and in Greek. And the chief priests, the Jewish leaders, said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. This is your king. There's 42 verses in this chapter. Um, it feels a little weird on, you know, the fourth Sunday of Lent when Easter's just around the corner to uh, spend too much of our attention on the crucifixion. That's coming, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, these are coming. But I'm struck in this text by the kind of king we encounter. And rather than read the rest of John 19's narrative of the crucifixion, I want to switch gears and look at another John real quick. John of Patmos, John the Divine, John the Revelator, the book of Revelation. I dare you to do a Bible Monday on Revelation next year. That would be cool. <laughs> that could get cool. In Revelation 5, we get this vision uh, that John received from the Lord, this apocalyptic vision. You can turn there if you want. I'm going to read it. Um, and in Revelation chapter 5, now, if we did this Bible Monday thing, we'd have a whole sermon on this, and it would be, we'd talk about the scroll and what the scroll means. And John doesn't tell us what the scroll is in this passage. But what we get, and what I want to focus on here, is what the vision of the king is and how it relates to the crucified king that we've just read about. And so in Revelation 5... We read this, that John saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll written on the inside and on the outside and sealed with seven seals and saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And so I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And then one of the elders said to me, do not weep, see the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. 
And then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered. That's the mascot of the kingdom of God. We have a wildcat, right? We have a powerful mascot. If you went to the University of California, Santa Cruz, your mascot would be the banana slugs. I just thought you would be interested in that. little fun fact. You see Santa Cruz banana slugs. I can't think of a weirder mascot, except maybe a slaughtered lamb, right? Lions, powerful. Slaughtered lambs. And this lamb went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. And when he had, they all fell before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for God, saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign on earth. And then all the angels join in and they say, Worthy is the lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, so like everything, right, singing to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And they all said amen and they fell down and worshiped. The slaughtered lamb. That's our king. That's our mascot of our kingdom. And I know that a lot of times my vision of the kind of king that Jesus is gets out of alignment. And I get enamored with power and politics and cultural dominance and all these things, right? And I need to be reminded to serve. And one of the ways that I'm reminded, in addition to spending time in God's word, is to just spend time worshiping that king. And in response to the word today, since I'm a worship guy, I hope you'll indulge me. And we'll end with a time of worship. Is that okay? Uh, my wife is here. Her name's Gloria. She works over at the seminary too. And she's going to join me. And I'm going to invite you to sing a song um, I'm not sure if it'll be familiar. I think some of my friends who are in more chapels than I am have told me that it hasn't been done yet. But it's just a simple call and response kind of song. Let's see if this works. Ooh, that sounds different. And I'm going to sing a line, and you're going to sing a response to that line with Gloria. And it's based on the text that we just heard from the other John, from Revelation 5. And so would you stand, and we'll... Uh, respond this morning. <laughs> 